Ta-da! Hello. Hi. <laughs> so, welcome to the Future Feed podcast, the the occasional conversational part of my of my newsletter. Um, I'm joined today by Jeff Sebo, director of the NYU Animal Studies Program and the author of the new book, Saving Animals, Saving Ourselves. It was a relatively short bio, so hopefully I didn't screw anything up. <laughs> sounds good. So, yeah, yeah, sounds good. Thank you. So I, yeah, so I, I just was like speed reading. I had already started your, your book as I, as I mentioned, but I was trying to, you know, cover as much as I could. Um, and so it was just making me think of all kinds of things that I've been thinking about and writing about. So I'm very excited to, to talk to you. Um, mm -hmm. So I guess, well, maybe just to start, like, how did you think of that title? Like, it seems like it's, it's very, it, 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 getting through it, I'm like, ah, this is really the, the heart of it. So why do you think it's kind of the heart of it? Yeah, good question. The, the, Boring answer is I crowdsourced the title <laughs> is, is how I thought of it. But but uh, more more to the point, I, I considered a lot of different titles and some of them were more academic and others were more general audience. And this was more on the general audience end of the spectrum. It has a nice active verb, which is always helpful. Uh, but but thematically, I, I liked that title because it conveys what I take to be the core idea of the book, which is that because humans are systematically reshaping the world in part via our exploitation and extermination of other animals we have a responsibility not only to exploit them less but also to assist them more we need to uh, do things for them in addition to not doing things to them and so having a title that suggests that we should be actively seeking to save and in various ways help and improve the lives of non-human animals and that saving animals is linked to saving ourselves in all kinds of ways. If we treat animals better, then we can reduce global health and environmental threats that impact us too, and so on and so forth. So, so I like I like the title both because it seems evocative to me, and because it conveys this idea that human and non-human health and well-being are linked, and that we have a responsibility to uh, improve the lives of animals not only for our sakes but also for their sakes. And did you have it's interesting because so i i was uh, you know going through some of the the chapters on sort of um thinking through some of the strategies on how we might do that and mm -hmm. you use we a lot in the book and i may have met, missed it in the beginning but i wonder if you have a specific we in mind because i get that a lot sometimes i'll use we sometimes in my newsletter and someone will say who, who's yeah. the we you're talking about jenny um so I'm curious if you defined that and I missed it or, yeah. I did, but very briefly, so you can be forgiven for missing it. Uh, I, I like using we because I do think it helps to think of these issues first personally and collectively, that that this is a responsibility that we have, not not something that somebody else somewhere has to deal with, but something that that each of us has to deal with in community with others. So So I like using the first person plural for that reason, but but it is easy to, to, to overuse that or to not specify what you mean. So what I mean is basically roughly those of us in the global 1% who are disproportionately responsible for global health and environmental problems uh, and who disproportionately have benefited from the industries that cause these global health and environmental problems, which is not, of course, to say 
that everybody else has no responsibilities with respect to this issue. I think everybody does in various ways have responsibilities to cause as little harm as possible and do the most good possible. But but because the, the global 1% uh, have this disproportionate responsibility and, and have disproportionately benefited, I am aiming the arguments in the book to them. Uh, and, and so we, as that global 1%, uh, have a responsibility collectively to create new structures that will reduce harm um, to vulnerable human and non-human populations and increase benefits for vulnerable human and non-human populations at the same time. And obviously to do that in community with uh, vulnerable human populations rather than you know for them in an imperialistic way, but we should accept that we have this responsibility and then think about how ethically and effectively to discharge it. Okay, so I have some like follow-ups on that, but before I mm -hmm. get in there, I want to like maybe back up because um, I want to talk about some of the the arguments that really jumped out to me. Mm -hmm. um, well, mostly just about this idea of like thinking, including animals, and thinking, of, I think about everything really, but about like in think in, in thinking, kind of structurally and holistically about. Mm -hmm something like climate change and pandemics and sort of like all these different problems. Um, it's, I mean, it's just something like we really don't do. Um, I mean, just like mm -hmm. in the, my day-to-day -day life, I feel like, you know, I can get people to talk about, you know, eating a little less beef for climate change because a lot of my own circle of friends are very interested in climate right. change, but start to talk about like, you know, the feelings of animals, the perceptions of animals. It's like, very easy to lose them. Um, yeah. and, and I'm a pretty new, like I came into studying or, or to writing about um, animals really from climate change coverage. So I'm I kind of in the same way. I'm like on my own, you know, journey. So, so I mm -hmm. guess that's hardly why it's interesting to me. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I, I wonder, well, first of all, so let's talk about that. So, so what do you, mean let's like unpack that what do you mean by sort of thinking about welfare health and environmental issues holistically and structurally yeah great so so holistically in the sense that we should think about these kinds of impacts together in an integrative way i i think sometimes in part for reasons that you mentioned for strategic reasons we think yes i acknowledge in general that there are a lot of reasons to for instance resist factory farming, there are animal welfare reasons and global health reasons and environmental reasons and many others too. And, and so we should use whichever ones will like reach this audience. So if it happens to be that this audience is receptive to the climate argument, I can make the climate argument and, and leave the animal welfare argument for a different audience or a different day, right? And, and I get why that might seem strategically like a good idea, but it can lead to a certain kind of siloed single issue thinking that then could lead to uh, perverse substitution effects. So for example, if all you think about are the climate impacts of animal agriculture, then you might be tempted to replace beef and dairy with, for example, chicken or fish, because chicken or fish are better for the climate than, than beef and dairy are. Uh, but chicken and fish are worse for animal welfare than, than beef and dairy are, because more animals are killed per meal than uh, in, in beef and dairy agriculture. And they have mixed effects from a global health perspective too, because 
um, chicken agriculture, for example, is more likely to lead to the development and distribution of antibiotic resistant pathogens or, or other pathogens. And so, so when we think about one set of impacts instead of all of the impacts together, then, then we can end up unnecessarily trading one set of harms for another rather than seeking solutions that reduce harms across the board. So we need to think about these issues holistically, all of the impacts at the same time in an integrated manner in order to identify the solutions that are better across the board rather than better in some respects and worse than other respects. And then when I say structurally, what I mean is there are things that we can be doing as individuals in order to reduce our individual complicity in harmful systems like factory farming and deforestation and the wildlife trade. For example, I can uh, reduce or eliminate my meat consumption and, and dairy and egg consumption and do all kinds of other things too. But ultimately there is a limit to what many individuals can do within prevailing social and political and economic and ecological systems that limit what kinds of options are accessible to us and, and how desirable those options are. And so if we wanna do this well, then we have to think about all of these impacts in an integrative way. And then we also have to be seeking not only individual changes that we can be making, <clears throat> but also structural changes that make those individual changes easier and more desirable for people to make. And so my, uh, yeah, so so I love that. And I was starting to think like, and how do we do that? And so I mean, obviously <laughs> there's like all kinds of different examples, but one just popped into my head that I've been thinking about writing about recently is there was this, um, I'm probably know about a DC Food Purchasing Act that passed like a year ago, but they haven't implemented mm -hmm. it yet. I think um, they're, they're at the sort of, hiring stage where they're going to hire people who are going to implement it or something like that. And it, and it, it uses, or like as part of the legislation, it uses, um, uh, so, so the idea is that you're going to, they're going to, you know, have some sort of a emissions target for the mm -hmm. food purchasing. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not sure the exact, if it's like schools included in that or not, but, but, but city purchasing of food, you're going to want to mm -hmm. hit this target. And meat is actually not really mentioned, interestingly enough. And so my immediate thought was like, oh, does that mean they're going to just, you know, have people buying local meat? But right. what it turns out is that they are using this um, calculator that was developed at, at World Resources Institute that basically puts in this like sort of, you know, protein scorecard and gives you, mm -hmm. an, you know, an emissions um, estimate, you know, for, for your different types of proteins that you would buy. Mm -hmm. Um, and there is something also in there about sort of locally appropriate food, but I was talking to an editor about this sort of like, you know, is there an em environmental justice angle? She asked, and I said, well, it's interesting, um, that there's only emissions in there really. Like mm -hmm. we're not talking about, you know, the pollution that might come from pork or, or poultry or all these other definitely not talking about animal welfare. There's nothing about that in there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, yeah. So I, I thought like, you know, it's, it's, it's really, or the, you know, the community impact basically of like, if you're going to buy just chicken and from like factory farms in Maryland, that's having a, a community impact on, you know, the, the, people who live by those factory farms there's pollution yeah. there and so it's all about you know certainly it's not in the language of the regulation but maybe if you got people to 
to uh, you know administer it who had that in mind, you right. might have a better chance of them to making better choices that 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 making more holistic choices that take into account all these different areas. But there's nothing in there to make that happen. So I guess like <laughs> if we were to go back in time, <laughs> or even now, you know, it's like I mean. I, you know, DC might be pretty amenable to, to, to working that in, but I don't know that anyone was really, you know, working on that, I guess. So I guess I'm saying, yeah, like how from the beginning might, um, I don't know, interested citizens who are lobbying, you know, or mm -hmm. like kind of, cause that's, that's, that's part of what happened for this. There's in different parts of the country, there's people who had this kind of like um, template that's like, okay, you could go take this to your city council and ask to, to, for these, and try to push for this legislation but right, maybe right. there's a way to do that where it's not just emissions but also taking into account these other other areas mm -hmm. without losing your audience can you do that you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah I, I i think that's a great point and a great question and i think that what it shows is that we need to think holistically in another respect too so before i was saying that we need to think holistically when it comes to the impacts of food systems and other systems right thinking about the animal welfare global health and environmental impacts at the same time but then a different respect in which we need to think holistically is we need to think holistically about the kinds of interventions that can make a positive difference because there are many things that we can do and that people are doing and and you mentioned one example right changing purchasing programs or uh setting them together with climate targets to incentivize better purchasing there are many other things that cities can do too so uh for example cities can use informational policy to uh, raise awareness and educate the public about the animal welfare, global health and environmental impacts of food and, and how to make, you know, humane and helpful and sustainable food choices. They can use financial policies in order to uh, either increase the cost of harmful products by by making them pay for the health and environmental costs of, of the work that they do, or at least they can shift subsidies away from harmful industries and towards uh, helpful industries so they can essentially make it easier and more affordable to to live on a plant-based or plant-forward diet uh, and regulatory policies to require companies to harm animals less, harm workers less, exploit animals less, exploit workers less, um, prevent egregious harms to public health and the environment. And uh, then they can do things like in increase representation for animals and and health and environmental issues within decision-making processes. For example, New York City opened an animal welfare office and appointed an animal welfare liaison who eventually became the director of that office. And, you know, that might not be formal representation of the kind that like human persons and citizens enjoy. So we do need to be seeking these further legal and political changes that can give non-human animals more standing in our systems, but it still puts a person in the room whose job it is to be thinking right. about animals and how animal issues intersect with other issues. And often having one person in the room whose job that is, is enough to identify all kinds of low hanging fruit opportunities to improve human and non-human health and well-being at the same time. And so my answer to your question is both and. Uh, we, we can do all of these things at the same time and any one of them in isolation might not make much of a difference, but when we do them together, then each uh, can can help the others to to realize its potential 
more. And, and so I definitely think this is an area where we need a broad pluralistic uh, approach. Okay, so how do we do that? <laughs> <laughs> well, so here's the thing, and, and it's interesting because I'm just thinking about it like, you know, media wise, and I've been thinking a lot about ugh, just coverage in all areas and like how we're kind of, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's you know, f f there's so much we can do as journalists to sort of like bring stories to the public's attention. Um, but this, I, the sort of big picture thinking you're talking about is hard, is, some, is sometimes hard to get into coverage because editors are sort of like, uh, okay, like this is like too big a story. Like, or like, I, I just need something you to, to ground it in one thing, you know, um, mm -hmm. what's one incremental change we can do? What's one solution that's working? Mm -hmm. um, and of course, like, that's not, you know, your job, <laughs> you're not a journalist, but I do wish, I do think that journalists need to be sort of a more, I don't know, keep, keep these, keep these like systems in mind and this like systemic yeah. change in mind. Otherwise we are always on the like day to day and we're kind of, you know, missing the forest for the trees. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I guess I'm so, so, so how do we do that? So, so how do we get people thinking like more pluralistically, more holistically um, when, cause it feels like to me, I guess, like just when I think about people who are in other areas more involved in like science communication, like on like vaccines mm -hmm. or something, it is all very incremental. Like, mm -hmm. we just want to tell you why this like vitamin K shot is good for a newborn. Like, I don't want to get into fights about vaccines. I just want to tell you about this one. We're just going to skip this whole controversy altogether. <laughs> that way mm -hmm. we can just, you know, get you these facts. Um, and it appeals very much to my brain. I'm sort of like, oh, good, good, good. Like, give me some facts that are just like limited in this little area. And, um, you know, I don't have to win over, you know, I don't have to like get you to change your life or your whole way of thinking. I could just kind of like, I could just give you the facts. Um, like it, it appeals very much to me, uh, you know, it seems as incremental and manageable. Um, and so I'm just wondering, you know, is there like a way to bridge the gap from getting from these sort of like, you know, incremental, okay, like maybe I'm reporting on, you know, poultry pollution here and climate emissions there. Maybe there's a welfare story over here. And like, how does one who's not studying these things kind of keep it all together? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I guess I have a couple of thoughts, but this is only thinking out loud. And <laughs> honestly, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so one thought is, is it is okay to have a division of labor where some people are unpacking specific issues and then other yeah. people are making connections between them, right? So, so maybe in particular news stories, what you ought to be doing is highlighting this one particular kind of harm, pollution of a certain type in a certain location, right? And then it can be your job in a different longer essay or somebody else's job, like when I write a book, to take all of this information and integrate it and show you what uh, arises out of, of, of that and, and say, this is the picture that emerges. And so these are the goals that we should be setting when, when we do advocacy and policy, right? So there can be a division of labor yeah. and it can be okay to like have some people who are specialists and other people who are generalists, as long as not everybody is a specialist, as long as some people are putting everything together and offering some ideas about how to deal with all of these issues at the same time, uh, that can then go back and inform 
the context for how the specialists are thinking about their own specialized work, right? And and then so maybe part B of the answer is that then as a specialist, like I, I'm pretending that that is what you are, like a specialist, like writing about specific uh, issues for, for specific outlets. Um, then you can keep that context in mind when writing about this particular kind of pollution in this particular area. And, and maybe having that context in mind allows you to make certain types of framing choices that mm -hmm. can allude to the other issues and gesture at the solutions that are uh, more in line with some of the other issues that we need to be think thinking about, right? So like, instead of an offhand comment that like reducing beef, like a whole, you, you have a whole story about the, you know, environmental impacts of beef, the climate deforestation impacts of beef, but, but then the framing can be, you know, this when put together with, uh, you know, public health and animal welfare impacts strongly suggest <laughs> that uh, we should be reducing animal consumption rather than simply we should be reducing beef and dairy and increasing chicken and fish, go have a chicken sandwich, you know? Um, so I think some combination of those things, like accepting that there is a division of labor and that sometimes like focused specialist work is required, but then trying to like frame that in a way where it like feeds positively into the broader effort and, and gestures at the bigger solutions uh, to, to whatever degree it is connecting with those other issues. I guess off the top of my head, those are my thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I think it reminds me of conversations that happen a lot on social media, which, you know, maybe is limited, but I feel like, especially there's, there's, I've, I've had this sort of like uh, love-hate relationship with like SciComm and science communication mm -hmm. in that it is, can be very powerful. I like reading the research about it, um, but it's always felt a little like half marketing to me. Um, like there's a part of it that I resist too, of like, I, mm -hmm. I just want to have a, you know, actual conversation with people um, and not have to be like a careful science communicator where um, um, I don't know, I'm like presenting things as a, I'm selling science. Like I don't want to sell science to you. It just is. Yeah. Um, and I feel like also it kind of, advocates often feel this is a little bit like bridging to sort of like you know and when I think about solutions conversations they're sort of like people who are really strong advocates and there's people who you know sometimes you see these debates about sort of like is industry is plant-based industry the solution kind of a thing mm -hmm. and people who are sort of maybe always like you know well we don't want to not go too negative we're going to make it positive um short story long, I'm just thinking like what I feel like after sort of hearing these like, what about my voice? What about this? What about this? It's like, maybe we 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 can benefit from all these voices in there, you know, like as long as not everybody's a techno optimist, like, <laughs> you know, cultured meat will save the world. That's it. There's no other thing to talk about or, yeah. you know, no solutions being put forward. It feels like at least then there's a robust conversation if people come to the table and, and are, you know, engaging. That's mm -hmm. not really a question. I'm just <laughs> in the state of Twitter. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I, 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 I can react to it anyway. I, I, I agree with you. And, and yeah, I think that is really interesting to hear from a journalist because definitely academics face those issues too, when we teach and to whatever degree we engage in public outreach or media, we have to ask those questions too. Like, how do you, on one hand, 
take into account everything that you know about like the science of effective communication strategies, but then on the other hand, remain authentically yourself and say the things that you mean and and yeah. want to say. And, you know, I, I think, I think that is honestly really hard to do. And I think it takes a lot of practice and improvisation and experimentation and figuring out what way of communicating best integrates the sort of like best practices of, of public communication with like who you are and why you do what you do and how you come across to others and how you want to come across to others. And so probably it would be a mistake to just work from a template or like identify some exemplar and try to be like them. You know, I, I think each of us has to figure out what way of communicating makes sense for us taking into account all of that. But I don't think the solution ought to be to on one hand reject the science of effective communication strategies, which which does contain a lot of useful insights, or on the other hand, to reject the aspiration to be authentic uh, and, and end up coming across as just a totally inauthentic shill for some interest group, uh, which of course is going to be counterproductive, right? But then the only alternatives to those things are to keep them both in mind and just learn through experience what uh, tends to come across in the desired way and and not, which which is not the best, not not the most satisfying answer, but I think probably the answer that makes the most sense. I know, I think it's right. I mean, I think I struggled in, in the, I mean, I still struggle because there's a part of me that's like always, um, even like now I had to, you know, to, to interview you. So a, co mm -hmm. a couple, I was doing this podcast, um, with a with a channel where we're sort of like interviewing new authors mm -hmm. and I would just immediately regress to like an undergraduate student where I'm like I have to know every single thing in this book and <laughs> I've got to I've got to hit all the like I just could not have a real conversation in the middle of this you know yeah because I was like I I don't know but I read chapter eight and, and I mean it was, it was still hitting me a little bit with yours I'm like oh my god I haven't read chapter nine I gotta get to that um because I'm like the child of a professor so I feel like oh I gotta do your homework and right you know, right I, I have to do that but if I get too into that like nobody really cares whether I've actually read like they care that I read it yeah. in the sense that they want me to be informed but it's they're not you know like teacher they're not, they're not my teacher from fifth grade like I have to let that go <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I do not personally care if you have read my book, though I do appreciate being able to talk to you about it. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah anyway, mean, go ahead. Yeah. Well, it's it's yeah. I mean, I I I also like well, I love reading books and love structure, but the, I think that having this student part of me who's like yeah. you know trying to remember everything isn't exactly the best like you know casual conversation. Yeah. Person. No, no. I and and again, I think so, something similar can can be true for academics. They're especially early in your career when you have. Uh, imposter syndrome. Well, I guess we always have some version of imposter syndrome, but when you especially have imposter syndrome, you over prepare for every lecture, you do yeah. the readings multiple times, make a bunch of lecture notes. And similarly, every new paper you write, you read everything you can get your hands on in the literature, take a bunch of notes, because you really want to make sure to do your homework. And often that can be counterproductive. Because for example, it makes you go into the lecture and kind of be on rails and not be as flexible or willing to go where the students want to take the conversation. Uh, and, and similarly, when you write your papers, there can be diminishing returns and you can get in the weeds and forget what you wanted to say in the first place. And, and there is something liberating about achieving a balance where you, you want to do enough reading, you want to do enough preparation that you can responsibly do your work, but then you also want to be willing 
to go and have a, a conversation with people and not be too worried if it conforms exactly to some very detailed set of notes that, that you had produced um, or, or to write a paper and see where it takes you and be in conversation with people through it and, and not worry if it already incorporates every last interesting idea that people have had. And when you, when you get to that balance, I think it makes the work better and, and more enjoyable too. Do you teach undergraduates too or, or just graduate students? I teach both. The whole nine yards. <laughs> <laughs> and our, how are, uh, I wasn't planning to, I wasn't planning to ask you this, but just curious, like um, as someone who has a kid going to college now, so mm. I'm thinking a lot about undergraduate life. So how are our kids interested in these issues? Like, like what's your perception of like, <laughs> my own yeah. I mean, I'm a very cynical child. So like, I, I had to like, it was somehow in the weird um, position of explaining to him, like, no, actually, individual actions can make a difference, even if systemic change is also needed. Because he was sort of like, yes. like, eighteen-year-old cynicism of like, nothing we do matters. Like, the, the right. planet's already screwed. So, like, why should right. I even bother? And I was like, I'm sorry. I guess I've completely screwed up in raising you. Can we just like rewind? How did we get here? <laughs> Um, but we ended up having a good conversation and the, and he, he, he actually seems to have been changed his mind a little bit on that. I think, um, but anyway, so I'm curious if that is similar to what you're finding or is it or like, or, um, yeah, like, yeah, I, so, so my experience with, with, uh, NYU students in, in the animal studies program is almost universally very positive. It might not be representative of, right, of like higher education in the United States or in the world right now, but, but the students who find their way to our program tend to be this really wonderful group of people who really want to challenge their beliefs and values and practices and learn and grow. And, and they come from different backgrounds and and perspectives some of them are vegan animal activists and they want to learn more about the issues so that they can do their activism in an ethical and effective way others are not vegan or animal activists but maybe they care about animals or are interested in animals but they actually sincerely want to challenge themselves and and see if they might change their minds about something and and so when all of those students find you and are willing to have conversations with each other then that really is the best possible learning environment, neither preaching to the choir nor uh, trying to convey to people who are totally indifferent that this is an important issue, but but just reaching a, a pretty broad range of people who are sincerely interested in trying to live ethically and want to learn how to do that. And, and so, you know, again, how representative that is, is not something that I am in the position to say, but I can tell you that there are a lot of students who are like that, and they are definitely capable of seeing connections across issues, definitely capable of grasping complicated empirical and normative ideas, definitely capable of striking the right kind of balance between we need individual change and we need structural change, the right balance between we need to think pragmatically and we need to think idealistically. Uh, when, when you set it up the right way, they really are receptive. And when you take them seriously and treat them like adults, I, I, I think they really are receptive to that. Yeah, my, my kid has just graduated or is about to graduate from this. Um, it's an IB program, which is mm -hmm. this sort of like somewhat, you, there's not a lot of it in the US, although it's kind of growing. But I think even though part of me sort of like 
so different from when I went to school. It does kind of do that. I think like it does. There's sort of this like high expectations in the beginning, which I think could be (laughs) a double-edged sword, but we won't go, go into all that. But I mean, I think the good part is like, there is this idea of like, we, we, you, like we're treating you as, you know, kind of like the thinking individuals you are um, mm-hmm. and, and and gives them that opportunity to sort of um, actually just kind of zoom out and think holistically in a lot of ways. So it's, yeah. kind of, I think that part of the program or the um, uh, curriculum, I guess, is, is, is good. is interesting, but yeah. Yeah, anything that we can do, and, and in a way, this this loops back to your question: What can we do to reach people with with these ideas? My my answer to that is in part: We need these broader structural changes too, right? Because you, as a journalist, and other people as activists or educators, are reaching people in a certain societal context where they were raised in a certain way, raised in a certain media environment, taught certain beliefs and values, and so on. And you have to take all of that for granted when you ask, how can I get my message across in, in the right kind of way, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so once again, I think the full answer to what can we do here is some combination of individual and structural changes, right? At, at one level, we should be thinking, how can I convey my message in the most effective way in this environment? But then the other question is, what can we be doing to change the environment in which people are brought up so that we have more options available to us as journals, journalists and educators and, and so on. And I think they're really thinking about these, these basic things that we need to do to improve our education system, to improve our media system, uh, and, and, and actually even improve our uh, activism communities. And, and part of that is making these connections across issues, part of all of that, you know, devote more resources within education systems to exploring the connections across these issues, devote more resources in newsrooms to doing that, devote more resources uh, in in uh, activist communities to building bridges across causes, have, have more animal activists who are interested in learning about human rights and global health and environmental issues and vice versa. It's, it's those sorts of background changes that I think make the public more receptive to the things that we need to be telling them. And, and then it gives us more options for uh, conveying those messages in a way that can reach them. Well, and you did touch on education in the book, and I, that reminded me I wanted to ask you about that because, um, you know, I'm in a lot, having covered agriculture for a while, I'm in a lot of Facebook groups with farmers. And, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you think of, so what would fly in my, you know, my kid goes to an urban school in DC, we're in the city. Um, and, so what would fly here will not fly in, in, you know, farmland country, right. which is of course a huge generalization that like, you know, there, there's lots more um, nuance there than, than, than I'm saying. But, um, but I will say in a lot of these, you know, farmer groups, if some, if, if parents will sometimes complain, you know, as something like a meatless Monday gets discussed at school and right. that's, not what you're talking about in terms of like drawing out these connections before that. But I, yeah, so I guess what I'm curious about is like, could you imagine there might be ways to introduce animal ethics, to think about the impact of animals in an environment like that without completely alien, alien but successfully, like, right, in a yeah. way that like doesn't make the parents erupt and pull their kids out for the day kind of a thing. Yeah. I am not sure 
I honestly, um, I think, you know, I, I think we need some experiments. Uh, Certainly, certainly there is a time and a place for relatively radical activism and a time and a place for relatively moderate, uh, activism. And obviously in, in a more moderate to conservative environment, it makes more sense to take more mainstream, moderate incrementalist approaches and to focus again on low hanging fruit, uh, things that we can be doing to reduce animal uh, use in the aggregate uh, while making momentum towards bigger changes. And so things like plant forward menus where plant is, you know, plant-based food is the default option is, is one example while conveying some messages about why this is useful as opposed to, you know, uh, meat free menus. But, but I also think that there is a, a case to be made for sometimes being will, willing to alienate people. You know, when, when society is, is harmful as our society currently is, when, when there are so many things that are happening that are harming and killing so many human and non-human animals unnecessarily, and when people have all kinds of um, racist and sexist and ableist and ageist and you know, classist and, and speciesist and so on and so forth attitudes uh, and structures that support this, uh, there is really no way of challenging it in a way that will be enough to destabilize it and lead to something better without alienating some people along the way. And I don't think that we should treat that as a license to alienate people unnecessarily. I think that we should try to avoid alienating people as much as reasonably possible. But we should also recognize that like social change sometimes requires some people making relatively radical arguments that are going to be somewhat alienating in the short term while doing what they can to mitigate that risk. But then that, you know, kind of moves the Overton window, shifts the center of debate, paves the way for moderate reform. The moderate reform then pushes us closer to these more radical goals. And so I think it's it's a long-term process. It's social change is complicated. It does sometimes require making people upset. Um, but, but yeah, so, so we should just be thinking as kind of strategically and pluralistically as possible in that respect too, I think. And I wonder if like some of it is, you know, I, I, I think when I, when I think about some of the like conversations or in, I don't know, yeah, engagement conversations with like livestock farmers, sometimes I feel like direct conversations are much easier to have than say like when I when the converse when I feel like what I'm getting is like talking points from actually livestock industry groups Mm -hmm. and I wonder if kind of getting thinking about you know some of what you touched on the book on sort of like more regulation and thinking of like Jennifer Jaquette I think that's how you say your last name her her research on some of these industry groups, like not necessarily, mm-hmm. there's the industry, there's sort of the animal ag industry, and then there's like animal ag alliance and some of these groups that actually kind of do the dirty work sometimes of the industry. Um, mm-hmm. And I will just having like covered farmers for a really long time, sometimes you get people who are themselves who are just having a conversation with you and actually are willing to criticize the industry and say like all kinds of things and just be be themselves. But then there are these sort of like talking points that I think it's not just talking points, but almost like framing, like they sort of get the framing in place before yeah. there can be a, a help, a, a, like a, a real conversation, you mm-hmm. know, almost like 
it's sort of like making things like these straw men things, you know, like liberal, I'm just picking out like the obvious example of like, you know, liberals are coming for your burgers and all this stuff instead yeah. of it just being like, okay, like here's, here's this modest policy. Can we just talk about this instead of in this like hyperbolic way of framing it that like the animal ag alliance has. So I don't know. I just wondering like if, just having looked at those groups a little more cl closely recently, if maybe that's like some of it, if, you know, you know, I don't uh -huh. know the best way to regulate them, but somehow so that it, it just seems like sometimes the conversation gets shut down before it can even start because it's being framed in this way. That's like not even accurate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it shows you the importance of, of, you know, good comms training, <laughs> like, like, like this is, this is part of why, we want we want people to really be thinking about effective communication in addition to being authentic and saying what they think is true obviously we should be doing that too uh be, because the stakes are too high and the media environment is too complicated and we really do need to be thinking very carefully about how to frame these issues and and what it takes to frame them in that way especially against the background of these interest groups cynically uh telling lies in a way that frames it to their advantage and then makes it much harder to get what we want to say across. And, and then when it comes to the specific ways that these industry groups are framing these issues, uh, yeah, I mean, I agree that it makes the work really hard. And I think figuring out how to respond to it is complicated because on one hand, you might think if no matter what I do, they are going to tell everybody that I want to take away your burgers. I might as well try to take away your burgers, right? Like, yeah. what do I have? To, what do I have to lose by going for the the radical, like abolitionist stance? If they're going to try to persuade everyone that I have that stance anyway, I might as well push that agenda, right? But then on the other hand, you might also think, yeah, but if I actually tried to do that, those allegations would be way more frequent and intense and have much more traction in the public sphere. And so there actually is, I think. A balance that needs to be struck there in in the response. I don't think we should be afraid to set ambitious, aspirational goals that look very different from the status quo. But I, I also think that we should not be naive about what it will take to achieve those goals and all of the incremental steps and compromises that are going to be necessary. And so again, we might need a division of labor. But I think that there should be a place for some people to say clearly, Industrial animal agriculture at scale is not humane, healthful, or sustainable. No way of reforming this industry can allow it to be humane, healthful, and sustainable, to say nothing of affordable. And we are going to have to end it. And that means we are going to have to reduce, over the next several decades, meat consumption by at least 90% globally. And that will mean scaling up some combination of plant agriculture and other alternatives and we can debate what those alternatives should be along the way but we at least need to agree that we need to phase down uh industrial animal agriculture while providing just transitions for people you know i think there there can be a place for people to say set those goals clearly rather than lying to people yeah but i also think we need to make it clear this is going to have to be a gradual incremental process done in community with others providing transitions for others. Um, and then maybe some people should actually even just focus on those incremental steps and not talk about the goals at all. So, so again, it's not either or all the way it's, it's some, some of us should be more aspirational. Others of us should be more incremental. Um, but, but we should all be keeping that goal in mind because there just is no future that, uh, can allow industrial animal agriculture to, to persist in, in the way that it is right now.
is there like a first step or, I mean, I, I like the ideas of like going back to sort of, you know, from the beginning, giving people this information, but for, you know, those of us who are now elder <laughs> and like, I'm looking, you know, in this, I'm constantly frustrated by, I feel like in media today, like it's, it's still kind of an activist position to say what you just mm -hmm. said, mm -hmm. like, which is frustrating for me as a journalist. Cause I feel like I'm someone who came to these conclusions just by researching facts. Like, it's not like I had an emotional epiphany, like bonding with an animal. I was just looking at the, you know, the evidence. And to me, it seems like this very rational um, conclusion that I, you know, reached, but mm -hmm. It's very in climate circles and other in other um, areas. It's 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 still sort of like oh, what you're saying is way out there when you, yeah. when you say it. So I wonder, and again, I guess I'm just thinking still incrementally, not holistically, because that is how my brain goes. Of like, I think you know how how are we breaking down these ways of thinking? Because um, mm -hmm. it seems like we're way behind on how we look at the animal ag industry in terms of as compared to like energy um and transportation like looking at these other industries like we just treat ag totally differently yeah yeah i i think probably there is no again no silver bullet which which yeah. is why it, it's always unfair when people say hey this might help and other people say that's not a silver bullet Nobody right. said it was a silver bullet, right? right. Um, but but that also means that there there is not going to be any simple, satisfying answer to your question because no single thing in and of itself is going to make the difference and and fix the problem, right? But but that um, and and you can pass this along to your kid if you want to. That is not a reason to be cynical and pessimistic right. and and think things can never change and I might as well do whatever I want. Uh, that is just a really convenient excuse for doing whatever you want, right? <laughs> you know, uh, it, it's it's not the case that positive change is inevitable. It's also not the case that positive change is impossible. Uh, we we just have to be in that kind of difficult middle ground in, in between. Well, that's why, and, that's just, sorry to interrupt, yeah. but that's why I like those incremental steps. Cause like for me, yeah. for my psychology, <laughs> for my yeah. mental health, like it makes me feel better just to not feel not feel hopeless i was i was mm -hmm. that's probably where my kid gets it is like that i was yeah. like that too for a long time um so instead of feeling that or feeling like because i feel like i think there's also this sort of like toxic positivity stuff that can be that that makes can feel also feel overwhelming so it's right. like and this happens all the time in climate conversations but it's like okay we like we get it it's neither extreme we want this middle ground we want to be doing a bunch of different things Right. And so it's like how, how, holding that, I think, though, it's like, how do we do that? Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and, and there, I think just everything I said before is in a way the answer. It's, it's uh, uh, a combination of, uh, you know, engaging in individual uh, consumer change and then various kinds of uh, political activism and advocacy, participating in, in boycotts, protests, elections, so on and, and so forth. Uh, but then also seeking these specific policies, sometimes at the local level, sometimes at the state or national or international level, where we find these ways to just gradually, incrementally phase down our support for harmful industries and phase up our support for helpful industries, shifting subsidies, um, taxing harmful practices, redistributing that uh, that money, research and development for 
alternatives that are going to be desirable, research and development, and and alterations to you know education systems so that we can be training people for greener, more humane jobs, um, new jobs programs where we can be employing people in greener, more humane jobs, putting the um, animal welfare offices and government. So somebody is advocating for animals, getting regulations on the books. Each of these things is in and of itself, uh, or could be in and of itself, uh, a moderate incremental change that is absolutely tractable in the short term in, in real world governments. Uh, and, but, but the reason I initially answered your question the way that I did is they will not by themselves solve the problem, right? So, so they are incremental changes that we can make. They are good to make. They will collectively build momentum towards broader changes, but we need to have realistic expectations about what they're going to accomplish. We should work really hard to pass these things, but then we shouldn't sit back and six months later expect things to be significantly better. That's not the way that it works, right? So, so there are lots of answers to the question, what can we do incrementally? Uh, but, but you know, the payoff is still gonna be down the road. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's like that just, you know, delayed gratification thing. <laughs> yeah, it's not not fun. <laughs> but it's good to keep keep in in mind. Um yeah, and maybe that's that's part of it. And maybe that's, you know, especially in today's world where there's lots of bad news all the time, that's maybe just getting harder for people because there is a lot of, you know, bad things happening all the time. Yeah. But um trying to sort of keep in mind this like you know, like here's these steps we are taking, here's these little wins that we have. Yeah. Uh, and how can we build yeah. on them? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and you know, one I I I would never uh want to describe it as a good thing that that lots of bad things are happening in the world. But but the fact that bad things are happening in the world is showing people that we do need transformative change in society. The, the fact of pandemics, the fact of climate change, maybe not enough, maybe not enough people are internalizing that, but a reasonable number of people are internalizing the idea that this is not sustainable. We need to build a fundamentally different type of society that can be more resilient, more sustainable. And that means changing basic systems like our infrastructure and our energy system and our transportation system. And, well, again, it's not good that there are all of these disasters that are prompting people to realize this. The fact that people are realizing this is an opportunity to invite them to extend that point to the food system and our interactions with animals in general. And if we already are making all of these transformative changes, then uh, we might as well consider our impacts on, on animals too, because if we do, we might be able to identify all these small things that we can relatively easily do when we're making these big changes anyway to improve outcomes for other animals really significantly without without harming humans uh, and and so so again while while i i don't endorse the fact that all these bad things are happening i i do think this transformative moment is an opportunity to bring animals into that discussion and get people to think a little bit more seriously about transformative changes that we could be making for them too in addition to the incremental changes that we should be seeking in the short term yeah, I mean, I hope as more people kind of learn about, you know, both thinking about pandemics, thinking about deforestation, which you, you know, hit on, you know, multiple times in the book, like, hopefully that kind of starts to open people's eyes to how we are all interconnected. Mm -hmm. um, I think, yeah, I think 
I, I don't know. Like it's, that seems that's um, I've just been, you know, probably learned about sort of the real impacts of deforestation only relatively recently I've been covering them. And I, what I notice is a lot of like, um, well, that's happening, you know, that's happening in Brazil. It's not happening right. here. Um, so the one big thing I'm like, try to think about um, is yeah, like just the interconnectedness of, you know, it just goes kind of back to what you were talking in the beginning of like, yeah, like how, you know, me eating a burger in DC could impact, um, you know, wildlife in another country, another continent. Mm -hmm. I think it's really, it's hard for people, but hopefully we're, I don't know, we're, we're, maybe we'll get there. I think that's, I feel like that's the next, I don't know, it's what I'm thinking about now, um, mm -hmm. for sure. It feels like, and I think one challenging thing in ad coverage is that a lot of it is very local. Like, um, so, you know, there's something about trying to, to, you know, do keep both of those things. We need to be caring about our own communities. Yeah. Um, we certainly have plenty of problems here in DC. Um, we're definitely don't care about every, you know, every neighborhood we, you know, at, at, as a city, we, we're constantly kind of failing the public health. I think, you know, like we're failing to, to kind of act as a group and care about all, you know, everybody. And at the same time, it's like also trying to, to, to keep these other impacts in mind. Um, right it's challenging for people, you know, it's, but it's what we need to do. Yes. I agree in both respects. <laughs> yeah. And I guess it's just like figuring out ways to have these conversations, like both, you know, or, or thinking about these things, both in schools, um, you know, just with our friends, you, you know, and coverage and, and policy level and all these different places. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but those are the things that I puzzle about is just like how to do that. Um, well, actually, here's one specific question I did want to ask. And so you had yeah. mentioned these animal protection offices. Yeah. Um, so how did those differ from like fish and wild, like the, the federal agencies we have, like fish and wildlife? Like, is, is there, a, how are they different? And how are, are they, are they, you know, do, is it a better way of kind of thinking about animals than what's happening at maybe like the agency level, federal agency level in the US? Yeah, so I guess one one version of that question is what what is the difference between the types of things that a federal agency can do and the types of things that like a city office can do? Yeah. And I am probably not the best person to answer that question because that is very far away from my area of expertise. But another another way of asking that question is what also is the difference between the orientation that these federal agencies are taking to this topic versus the orientation yeah. that the the city uh, uh, office offices are taking to this topic. And there I, I can offer a kind of general answer and there might be exceptions to the rule, of course. But in general, I, I, I think it is safe to say that most federal agencies that attend to this issue at all attend to it in an in instrumentalizing way. They, they are interested in animals insofar as animals are resources for human consumption, right? Like humans care about animals in various ways. We own them, uh, we treat them as our companions sometimes, but then we treat them as food or clothing or sources of medicine or income or knowledge. And because we care about all of those things, we care about um, beauty and companionship and, and you know food and income and medicine and knowledge and all of that. Uh, for those reasons, we should conserve 
species and, and ecosystems to an extent, you know, enough for the populations to replenish and be able to be like harvested or exploited sustainably. Like th those are very much, I think, the orientations for the most part of like federal agencies that uh, tend to impacts on animals at all. Whereas the animal welfare offices specifically are uh, drawing attention to the idea that animal welfare matters for the sake of the animals too, like that their lives matter to them and how we treat them, how much happiness and suffering they experience, that intrinsically matters, that matters for its own sake. Um, and, and that kind of forces us to look at animals, not only or not at all as objects, commodities, uh, property, but, but rather as subjects who have lives of their own and interests of their own um, and needs and vulnerabilities of their own. And uh, to, to, to figure out how we can make policies that are going to not only um, allow for sustainable use of the things that we should be using, but also improve human and non-human lives at the same time for the sake of the human and non-human subjects of those lives. So that is the main conceptual difference. Uh, but with that said, even the animal welfare offices don't go far enough, right? They, they, they are better than, than the, this other approach that views animals as having purely instrumental value as resources, right? It is better than that. Uh, but ultimately, this is not fundamentally uh, any kind of formal legal or political status for animals, right? Humans enjoy legal personhood. That means we can have legal rights uh, and, and others ha have to respect those legal rights. Uh, we are citizens and, and so we have certain political rights. Uh, for example, have our interests represented in an equitable way in the political process to be able to reside in the area we were born and return there if we leave and, and so on and so forth. And so you can have an office that hires somebody to be present in the room and say, hey, what about the animals when people are passing new legislation? But that is still a really long way from having people empowered formally to represent the interests of animals when making and interpreting and enforcing the laws that govern our behavior. And, and so I, I think the animal welfare offices are an improvement on this purely instrumentalizing approach, but there still needs to be a serious conversation in governments about whether and how to secure a more fundamental kind of legal and political status for other animals and representation too. And I guess maybe this brings back to the title. Like, is it, I mean, you kind of go into this in the, in the, you know, the chapter where you're talking about different, different ethical frameworks that I confess I struggle with because my <laughs> brain is, I don't know, puzzles over it. But um, yeah, like, is it, what do you think is kind of the best way to sort of like open people's eyes to looking at you know to considering animals for their sake is it this like when you do that you actually you know you actually you know can protect humans too or is there sort of this you know is there a way we can like ask humans to say like actually just you know let's let's not put ourselves first like yeah. let's think about the animals too yeah I think often simply teaching people more about animals and, and really uh, helping people to understand that animals are these really complicated beings with minds and lives of their own and, and are capable of consciousness and, and 
happiness and suffering and emotionality and bonds of care and interdependence with each other and with us, that they have these qualities, right? Because a lot of people are raised to think that animals are unthinking, unfeeling machines, or that they have really simple minds and experiences. But but to really show people that animals are these complex individuals um, with these personalities and these needs and vulnerabilities, I think already just exposing people to animals more um, makes makes a really big difference. And so sometimes we don't need to overthink it. But but when it does come to things like philosophical arguments, I think in my experience as an educator and just uh, as an observer, the the arguments that people like Peter Singer and Tom Regan and others were making, you know, uh, decades ago are still really resonant. And obviously we need to update them and, and uh, clarify them in various ways. But this basic idea that um, human and non-human oppressions are linked in various ways and prejudices are linked in various ways. You know, why is human oppression wrong, human discrimination wrong? Why is racism, sexism, classism, ageism, ableism, et cetera, wrong? They are wrong because at the end of the day, not because everyone is the same, not because everyone is equally smart and talented. I mean, it would be ableist to think that that is why we deserve equality, right? Because yeah. of mm -hmm. uh, equal smarts or talent, to say nothing of the fact that not everybody is equally smart or talented. Um, so as you know, Singer argued, equality is a moral ideal. When we say everyone is equal, we mean that we should treat everyone equally by equally considering their interests, independently of how smart they are, independently of how talented they are, independently of what social or biological category they happen to occupy. I don't get to see you as lesser than because of different IQs or because of different achievements in life or because we happen to be different races or genders or live in different countries or anything like that, right? Um, but then but then when you realize that is the basis of equality or that is the basis of, of the type of concern and respect we should have for each other, then that does, um, unless you wanna be arbitrary about it, naturally extend to other animals. Oh, I guess I ought to equally consider their interests too um, independently of things like whether they can use language and reason in the same way as me, whether they look the same as me, whether uh, they're in the same biological category as me. If they have interests, then I should consider their interests. And they might be different than mine, so maybe I should treat them differently than people should treat me. But I should consider their interests, and if I don't, then I'm just exhibiting a certain kind of prejudice. Uh, I, I think those kinds of arguments need to be made carefully because you don't ever want to come across as though you're reducing human and non-human oppression to exactly the same thing, or you're yeah. comparing oppressed humans and oppressed non-humans in this like simplistic and reductive and appropriative way, that's really bad. But I think that there are ways of making the arguments that show that oppressions are linked, um, that there are lessons that can be learned about one and applied to another, that we all benefit when you understand the root causes of oppressions and expand your like respect and, and compassion and so on. And so I think these arguments are good ones to be making as long as we make them carefully. And they they really can resonate with people when when made in the right kind of way. So, so when it comes to philosophical arguments, I still think that um, that kind of argument is a very good one. Yeah, and, and so I guess like for, for, for myself, maybe it's just like some t getting away from like black and white thinking about animals, as you mentioned, like they're, they are very complex and, you mm -hmm. know, just cause we can't know everything about them doesn't mean we should necessarily assume anything. Like we can keep uh -huh. and learning. Um, I feel like that with, with farm animals in particular, like reading about chickens was really 
it was it, it, reading about poultry and welfare, chicken and chickens and, and their welfare was really hard because it's sort of like, we really don't, like the way they behave is totally weird to us as humans. They like make a lot of, <laughs> they make a lot of decisions as groups. They do all these things that look totally weird to us. Yeah. Um, and now part of it is be a reaction sometimes to being like in cramped conditions. So there's that, mm-hmm. but even beyond that, it's like, they're not like us and that's okay. And like, we mm-hmm. may not just like, we may observe some chickens and, and uh, not have any clue what's going on. So, but it like, I try to like approach that with curiosity, you know, just sort of like, mm-hmm. okay, like I'm seeing this behavior. Like, what does that mean? Just trying to like learn more um, or like l- trying to learn about bees because bees seem really complicated and insects, right. like, you, you know, probably can figure out less than chickens there. But like, I think, you know, where I guess in some ways, especially like me living in a city, you know, we feel sometimes really disconnected from the animals. Um, and we don't necessarily have these opportunities to like stop and pay attention and sort of like, you know, just try to observe and learn, I guess. But something about that seems like, you know, maybe that's kind of a way that could be an unlocking of things and, you know, and sort of like putting aside maybe black and white thinking about it, at least for myself, like I have to know everything about this chicken and like, you know, what what the chicken wants exactly, like what's the ideal life for a chicken. And instead just like over time, kind of be gathering information, you know, yeah, Um, yeah. that's kind of how I've been trying to approach it as someone who wants to like have these like black and white answers that are very concrete. Yeah, I completely uh, agree about that. So, so I'll, I'll just add add two points to what you said, which which I think is right. One one being that yes, I, I think we have no choice but to embrace our uncertainty and cluelessness about what it might be like, if anything at all, to to be various other animals. Like we can be pretty confident that at least all vertebrates uh, are sentient, capable of experiencing pleasure and pain. That probably some invertebrates, if not many or all, are capable of of feeling pleasure and pain. But we can't ever know for sure exactly what the scope of sentience is in the world, nor can we know for sure exactly how intensely different animals can experience pleasure and pain, at least not anytime soon, or how good or bad their lives are. We, we can study it and try to improve our thinking about it, but we can never know these things for sure. Uh, but we nevertheless have to figure out how to treat them at scale. And, and so that, that means striking this nice, delicate balance between on one hand, recognizing our ignorance and our, our uncertainty, our arrogance, often our bias. Uh, but then on the other hand, not treating that as an excuse to avoid hard questions about animal welfare, right? Um, yeah. So asking questions, making incremental progress, learning more, um, improving our estimates and assumptions, uh, but while realizing that we still have a lot to learn and these are only our best efforts at estimates and assumptions rather than anything like knowledge. And that's not comfortable, but that's where we are and and we kind of need to accept that. And then the only other small thing I'll add is, I think even those of us who live in cities have lots of opportunities to encounter animals. You know, we have plenty of rats and pigeons and turtles and uh, raccoons and bats and all sorts of animals in New York City. And, you know, we can we can forget that because we're th- we think of like, you know, uh, captive animals and then wild animals who are really far away from us. And we forget these liminal animals who coexist yeah. with us, but not in our homes or zoos and and so on. And so I just think remembering that they exist and that that we have interactions and relationships with them, too, 
can can often be an, an opportunity for people in the city to kind of like rethink what it means for something to be urban and and what it means for us to be like living in a, a city environment and and what the community really is here. Yes, definitely. I mean, I can't believe me, I can't get away from wildlife in DC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think like, yeah, I mean, it's probably the same anywhere, I guess. But I feel like in general, sometimes I'm like rushing around, not spending time, like thinking about what it's like to be that animal. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, especially in DC where it's like, you know, I mean, it, well, it's interesting. I think that there's, I think there's definitely a movement to kind of like think a little bit, you know, more holistically about our environment and our environmental impacts, which is really good. Like, how are we managing rats? How, you know, are we not like, let's not just like douse the streets with chemicals, et cetera. Like, um, there, there's definitely some of that happening, which is good. Uh, but yeah, like, it's, I think like in general, yeah, we, we do a lot of like, I just want that away from me. So yeah, <laughs> I don't yeah. have to think about it. Yep. I agree. So that's like the challenge for us, I think in cities of like you know, <laughs> taking the moment to have, like, as you said, like uncomfortable questions. Yeah, um, I agree. Or even like mosquitoes. I mean, like we have people, yeah. you know, come out and spray for mosquitoes and then there's sort of this whole like movement to have like mosquito repellent which just like moves it to another backyard the repellents are you know natural essential oils and yet those have impacts like there's all these like things that like are complicated for people to think about (laughs) yeah and and you know one one complicated thing for animal activists to accept too is is that harm is inevitable in in you know the real yeah. world. We we are not going to be able to create anything like a just multi-species society without sometimes intentionally or accidentally causing harm to some human or non-human populations. There's just too much conflicting need uh, and and too many individuals in need and and all of that. And so sometimes it might be necessary to do things like kill some animals in order to prevent them from harming many other animals or uh, resolve conflicts in other types of ways. Uh, so so I, I'm not even actually saying uh, that we should never cause harm to animals and, and so on, but, but I do think it should be a last resort and done as respectfully and compassionately as possible rather than right now treating it like a first resort whenever there's any kind of perceived conflict between trivial human preferences and vital non-human needs, uh, going and killing them and treating it as a game, uh, the, the sorts of things that we do right now. So so yeah, I think we should, we should just acknowledge that the world is complicated. Um, not everybody is going to be able to get along in a purely harmonious way, but we can still seek these individual and structural changes that dissolve a lot of the tensions and conflicts and then be as thoughtful and equitable and compassionate as possible to the degree that we then have to make hard choices about priority setting with the the remaining conflicts. Yeah. And I don't want to keep you too much longer, but yeah, like I was thinking about these examples I mentioned, it's just like thinking about our neighbors too, like not just like I can afford this, whatever, to get rid of something. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it just shoves it to my neighbor's house who can't afford it. But instead, yeah, yeah. like, could we have 
you know, a conversation with the community, you know, where we come together and try to make some choices like, you know, that's, that's would be like pretty ambitious, but yeah, those are the kinds of things that I, you know, would like to see from like public health conversations of like, can we just, you know, think about our neighbors guys? Can we just do that? That would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Well, maybe that's a good positive note to leave it on. I know we're all over the place. This is how my brain works. So I appreciate you coming along for the ride. Thank you so much. This is how the issue works. Yeah. Yeah. No, my my pleasure. The issue. This is how the topic works. All these different things are connected, you know, so I think it's great to talk about them all in the spirit of being holistic and about, about our conversations. Yes, they all they are all connected. So I'm gonna I'm gonna just say that to to, to anybody who's ever like, my God, <laughs> just goes all over the place in their brain. I say, you know what? It's because it's all nope. connected. So I'm a big picture thinker. That's all it is. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Good. Um, no, no. Thank thank you very much for for having me on. It's been great to talk to you about this. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I'm going to hit stop somehow. All right. Thank you very much.